Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. In the state of Arkansas, there are three abortion clinics. Two only offer medication abortions in which a woman takes two rounds of medication to end a pregnancy with the termination usually happening at home. The third abortion provider in Arkansas is the only one in the state to offer both medication abortions and in-clinic abortions. With protesters outside the clinic and a Republican-controlled legislature working to restrict access to abortion procedures, it's not easy work. I know this from talking to the clinic director, who's also my friend. Lori Beard-Williams. She and I recently spoke about her work and the patients that she and her staff help. I share that conversation in this episode, which is titled, Grace Under Pressure. So, Lori, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And full disclosure, we are old friends. Uh, We met through someone very near and dear to both of us, my college roommate, your husband, uh, and I'm very lucky to know you and lucky that you're willing to take the time to chat with me. So thank you. You're quite welcome. (laughs) And um, my understanding is that you work at uh, Little Rock Family Planning Services. Do I have the title right? Yes. Uh, I've heard people use the term abortion clinic, uh, but I was listening to uh, another uh, provider recently who used the term uh, clinic that provides abortion services, and I can imagine some nuances that distinguish those two. Uh, how would you? What name would you use for your workplace? Either is acceptable. We often refer to ourselves as an abortion provider, so it's I think just different verbiage of whatever you're comfortable with. Okay. And one of the reasons that I can imagine some might prefer clinic that provides abortion services, or maybe they don't prefer it, but when I hear that, I think that it's a clinic that provides a variety of services, including uh, abortions. Is, is that true of uh, your um, uh, your clinic? Yes, we do offer other services. There are some clinics that are even more diverse than we are. Yeah. Definitely the majority of our practice is abortion provision. But we do offer other services, including contraception, birth control of all kinds, STD testing, and well-woman exams, and all kinds of well-woman care related to that. And you're in the state of Arkansas. Uh, How many other clinics are there in the state that provide abortion services? So there are two Planned Parenthoods, one in Fayetteville, Arkansas, that's about three hours away from Little Rock. And there is a Planned Parenthood in Little Rock. Both of those clinics only provide medication abortion. We provide both the in-office procedure and medication abortion. And how would you describe the current law in Arkansas right now? Well, it seems to get worse every year. (laughs) 
since really since 2013 has been when it's really become increasingly hostile. It's always been difficult. But since 2013, we have just had an onslaught of new anti-choice laws that have been passed by our Republican legislature that has made it increasingly difficult for us to practice. Many of these laws we've challenged through court cases with our ACLU attorneys as well as the Center for Reproductive Rights. We continue to evaluate the laws that have been passed this legislative session. In We've already closed legislative session for 2019, but they passed eight anti-choice laws that will further limit our ability to practice and limit our patients' ability to access our care. And is it your sense that more were passed this year than in recent years? Well, <laughs> Arkansas always has a significant number, especially since 2013. This was comparable to 2017, where we probably had a similar number of laws passed. And 2015 also had a very significant number. So, I only, I only, as expected... I, I only ask because I know that uh, the confirmation of Justice Brett Kavanaugh has led many pundits to expect that uh, uh, Republican legislatures were going to ramp up uh, the number of uh, restrictive bills. But it sounds as if you haven't noticed a shift in Arkansas because there are already quite a few happening each each uh, session. Most definitely. we Every session, we wonder what new and creative things they're going to come up with because at times we feel like they've already tried everything here they can but they never never hesitate to surprise us with their creative laws that they have in any way they can to limit our ability to provide care and my understanding is you are the clinic director yes that's correct so what does that mean so as clinic director i have a broad range of functions and job titles. We're a small independent practice. We don't have any other clinics or affiliates other than our our one location, which means it's sort of like a, a mom and pop business. It's just us and our employees doing what we can to to run our business in the best way that we can. That means that I wear a lot of different hats. I run the day-to-day operations of the clinic. I oversee compliance with both health department guidelines and National Abortion Federation guidelines and oversee the financial management of the clinic along with help from my from other employees and the other owners. Um, I work with our attorneys to fight the lawsuits and mount the challenges to the legislation as they come. I work with the ACLU during legislative session to help everyone interpret what these laws are going to mean in practice and how they're going to affect patients and our practice and our ability to provide care. So a lot of different roles within being the clinic director. So does this mean you're no longer actually directly interacting with patients? No, I do that all day long as well. Wow. On days days where we see patients, I'm still one of the main counselors that talks with patients prior to their abortion and I work with the rest of the staff to make sure the clinic runs smoothly, and but I definitely still have patient interaction every day that we see patients. I also have a small gynecology practice where I do well-woman care and yeah. birth control and contraception. Mm-hmm. 
in brief, what was the road that led you to this profession? Well, I always knew once I became a nurse that I wanted to do women's health, which led me to be become a women's health nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. And throughout my training and my program there, my instructors were very open about abortion care and talked about it as just a spectrum of care throughout life and just didn't make it any separate or different from any other portion of care that we learned about, which I think was valuable in my learning experience. I never really thought that I would work in abortion care. It wasn't something that I had planned, but when I became a nurse practitioner and I was looking for jobs, I interviewed with the doctor that I'm still currently working with and my very first day, I knew immediately that that was going to fulfill a need, and I was just unbelievably grateful to interact with these patients. And for their gratitude, The it was so rewarding and just really felt, felt like a fit to me. So tell me more about who your patients are. Are there any, is there like a profile uh, that describes the most common uh uh, type of patient? Are there certain uh, groups, be they groups defined by age or income, that are, uh, as I would say, statistically overrepresented among your patient population? Well, we do have a very diverse patient population. Since we are the only full-service abortion provider in Arkansas, we see a very wide variety of patients. I think statistically we probably do see patients who have lower socioeconomic status more predominantly than in the general population because often those are the patients that need our services. So they are represented disproportionately. But it definitely a wide variety of age range, socioeconomic status, race, family size, family structure. I mean, we see just about every kind of patient that you could imagine. And when you think about those patients, I wonder if you can talk about what the who's going to be hurt the most uh, if access to clinics like yours becomes more difficult or, uh, say, if a bill like the one in Alabama actually went into effect, uh, becomes extremely difficult uh, to get uh, access to your services. Who's going to be hurt the most by that? Well... Obviously, women with means will still be able to obtain an abortion. Women yeah. who can travel will. Women who don't have the the income, the financial stability, and the means to just find the transportation are going to be the ones who are not going to be able to travel and access care. Yeah. So they will certainly be much more significantly affected. There, you know, we already see this effect in our patients as clinics have become less and less available geographically patients are traveling further and further to see us for a variety of reasons and we already see the patients who are having difficulty accessing our care and arkansas has a waiting period which at this time is a 48 hour 48 hour waiting period but that also is in person which means every patient must travel to see us twice and some patients come from four or five hours away or more. 
we already see the difficulties that they have getting childcare and getting time off work and finding transportation and all the things that go with that. And then to do it twice seems sometimes impossible. And we know there's patients now that aren't getting to us or aren't getting back to us for the second visit. And if there starts to be states that have no access, that will just become that much more magnified. There will be those patients that just are not able to access care. How often in your experience does a woman come in for that first visit and then within that 48-hour period changes her mind? I think it's quite rare that patients change their mind. It does happen. Um, I think more so, I mean, just statistically, I think we see back 80% of our patients. Mm -hmm. But there's there's a... that 20%, there's probably a lot of reasons they don't come back. Something changed in their life and they decide they don't need us or they change their mind about their desire to have an abortion or they miscarried the pregnancy. They access, decided they were going to access care somewhere else, didn't have the means to get back to us. All of those things probably play some role in the percentage. It's hard to really know which percentage of those have changed their mind and decided not to go ahead with the termination. Yeah. You mentioned that one of the roles you play is in providing counseling to women who come to your clinic. Can you talk about some of the information, perhaps advice that you offer in those counseling sessions? Sure. And there's two different types or two different ways in which we counsel patients. Patients have to have two visits. On the first visit, all patients are required to get state-mandated information, some of which we do not feel is medically accurate, but we are required to provide them with anyway. Can you give me an example? Arkansas state law requires that we tell patients that they can reverse their medication abortion should they change their mind after they have begun that process. We feel there is no credible medical evidence to support that, but the law requires that that information be given to patients. We also have to provide patients with state material, a booklet that has pictures of pregnancy at different stages of development, information on adoption and places that they can apply for Medicaid or all kinds of services that would allow them possible access to funding to help pay for their care if they decided to stay pregnant. And that's the, the first visit. So that's different from the counseling that they receive on the second visit. But when they return, B- Putting myself visit, in your shoes, I could imagine that during that first visit, if I'm compelled by state law to offer, quote, information, unquote, that I, in my professional judgment lacks any scientific basis, I would feel a need to place that so-called information in the context by going on to say, I, I'm mandated to tell you this, but actually there's no scientific basis for this. Uh, I guess two questions. Uh, well, I guess the first question is, if you did that, would you be in violation of the law? I don't believe so. The law states what information we must provide. It does not prohibit what other information we give our patients. Are you at liberty to tell me uh, what other information or context you might provide vis-a-vis that, that particular example of information? 
Sure. So we are very upfront with patients that we, and the, the sentence that I provided, that we don't think there is any credible medical evidence that supports medication abortion reversal. Yep. We actually say that phrase. We also have handouts that have real statistical information and medical information based on fact. And we provide them with that information as well that talks about medication abortion reversal and the the myths versus the facts. And we have a handout that specifically talks about that so that they have the best information in which to understand the information they're being presented with. So I, I really want to get to that second interview in a second, but one more follow-up on this. And really it's, it's a, it's a related question. And that is, if I were to, is it your sense that if I were to go to the Arkansas legislature and go person by person and talk to them, would the divide between those legislators who support a law requiring that you share information that has no scientific basis versus those who don't, is that a strictly partisan line or would I find both some Democrats who would actually support laws that require that you share that information and would I also find some Republicans who oppose it? It's quite partisan. I don't think that you would find any Republicans that would oppose it. Yeah. You might even find some Democrats that support it. Yeah. Tell me about the second interview. So on the second visit, patients are given an opportunity to, to talk more in detail about why they're there. Are they comfortable with their decision? Are they comfortable going ahead with the procedure that day? making sure that, you know, they've already been given some information about the procedure and risks and the information that's required by the state, making sure that they're comfortable with all that, they didn't think of other questions since the last time we saw them, explain in more detail what's going to happen from there and the step-by-step process of the procedure. And that's a, a different session because at that point, it's not just information. It's their second visit. They're committed to having the procedure that day, of course they can change their mind, but that's why they're there. So it's a different kind of discussion. It's not just information. There's more, are you okay with this today, and are you okay going ahead from here? And how long does the procedure typically take? So the in-office procedure is, is very quick. In the majority of cases, which are first trimester procedures, which are the majority of our patients, it takes less than 10 minutes Mm -hmm. for the physician to complete the procedure. And then what happens after the procedure is done? Is there some final exit uh, conversation? Well, depending on if the patient chose to have certain medications for sedation during the procedure, their time afterwards is sometimes longer because of medication. But they do have a recovery process where they are again given information about what to expect after, what you know, signs and symptoms to watch for, things that patient, we would want to hear from them if they had problems, our contact information. Again, we visit revisit contraception that we have visited in that initial counseling session that day. So there is a little bit of a follow-up in recovery to wrap things up and make sure they have all the information they need. So 
So when I was listening to um, an episode of The Abortion Diary, which is uh, another podcast, they were interviewing Nakia Grayson, who is a provider in Memphis, so just up the road from you. And one of the things that she said was that she aims to create a non-judgmental space for the women who come for services there. And I'm tempted to ask you if you also aim to create a non-judgmental space, but that feels like an, a question with an obvious answer. I'm, I'm sure your answer is going to be yes. A am I right about that? Yes. So what I'm more interested in than what I was pretty sure was going to be a yes is what does that mean? Does that mean that you actually, in your interactions with patients, strive not to even pass judgment silently? Um, or does it mean that sometimes you think, wow, you really screwed up, but you just don't express that to the patient? I think as personally, I really strive not to pass judgment. And over the many years that I've done this, I think you become better and better at understanding that you can't possibly know someone's situation. Yeah. And that helps the time and the experience of seeing so many patients over so long a period of time helps you to understand how to not be judgmental. I think in terms of the atmosphere we create, it's working with our staff, absolutely every staff member from the very first person they see when they walk in the door to the person that does their lab work, every single person that they interact with should be a positive experience. And we work really hard with our staff making sure that they understand that and that they have, they go out of their way to show kindness and compassion to our patients. And that's very important to us. And our patients often express how appreciative they are of that, how much they notice. I'm repeatedly surprised by the patient that said, I can't believe everyone's so nice here. Hmm. And we get that a lot, yeah. and I it always surprises me. I'm like, but what did you expect? Did you have this expectation that we wouldn't be nice to you? And what do they say? And some of them say, well, yeah, I feel really bad about being here, and I thought it was going to be awful, and people have told me it was going to be awful, and we're obviously glad that we give them a very different experience from yeah. what they were expecting, but it still surprises me the stigma that surrounds abortion and so much so that patients expect to be treated poorly. I wonder if, without divulging any identifying details, obviously, if any patient comes to mind as someone who, by virtue of her experience, by virtue of the impact that seeing a pregnancy to term that was not one she wanted would have had on her life. If, if there's someone who comes to mind who might evoke compassion, even among someone who is staunchly anti-choice. That's a difficult, a difficult question for maybe reasons you wouldn't expect. Okay. So when we talk about abortion, there's always those outlying cases. There's the extraordinarily young patient. There's 
the patient who was sexually assaulted. There's the patient who had a wanted pregnancy that has a profound fetal anomaly. These do evoke more emotions in us. They evoke more emotions in in people in the world who are unsure where they stand on choice. But that's, when we focus on those patients, I think we miss something. We miss why abortion care is so important because we can't have a panel of people that decides if their reason is good enough. Hmm. We have to have a support for choice because every woman decide, needs to be able to decide to make that choice for herself. And it, it shouldn't be that story that evokes the extreme emotion in someone who thought that they were anti-choice, but then they hear this story and, oh, well, for that reason, I feel differently. Mm-hmm. It's more about the patient's who need the care regardless of their reason, mm-hmm. but that this the care is there, it is provided because that's what's important and that's what's needed is this safe medical care for women that choose to be there and not just for the extreme situation. Are you or have you at any point been a person of faith? I was raised in the church. Mm-hmm. I was raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. And, but I had a different faith experience prior to my arrival as an abortion care provider. Yeah. So even though I was raised in faith and raised in the church and was extremely active in the church, as I grew older and became much more of a science-minded person, science guided my views of the world much more than religion. And over time and through my education, that became even more profound to the point where I don't consider myself a person of faith at this time. But that was prior to my experience becoming an abortion provider. I don't know if you and I are, you and I have ever talked about my own, I hate this cliche, but my own faith journey, but it parallels yours. Um, I think yours is rooted more in the natural sciences than mine. But even as a social scientist, I followed a very similar trajectory, and I would not characterize myself as a person of of religious faith um, uh, anymore. But even now, I think that Jesus, if, if the Jesus of the Gospels, was a cool dude, and one of the things that you reminded me of, and if I understood you um, in your description of the the need to preserve choice, not just because of these clearly evocative cases, but to ensure that every woman, even if she might not seem like a sympathetic case, has the right to make her own choice. I was uh, thinking of um, uh, judge not lest ye be judged. And, and I guess where I'm headed is I, I wonder if you would, in fact, see some similarities between the approach that you are aiming for and the approach that the Christ of the Gospels urged us all to to aim for in our treatment of each other. Definitely, and I, I do see that parallel. I'm extremely grateful for the experience I had growing up in faith and the perspective it has given me on the world. And... Also, the, my ability to interact with my patients who have a profound 
faith that have made them morally conflicted where they are right now. Yeah. Not that I feel like I'm in a place that I can help them solve some of those those feelings, but I can at least be empathetic and understanding and understand where they're coming from and why they have those very strong emotions. What makes your job feel most meaningful? It's definitely the interaction with the patients, which is when you asked if I would, I still interacted with the patients. I don't think I could ever stop the patient interaction that I have because that is the absolute most fulfilling and rewarding part of my job. That's why I continue to do what I do. Interacting with the patients and seeing their gratitude, seeing their journey through this very emotional time in their life, and whatever little small or large help I can be in that journey is what motivates me to continue to do the work. What is the biggest challenge? Lately, it's definitely been the legislative attacks and all the work that comes along with that. The adjustments in our practice, the changing things for no medical reason. The When we change to the in-person waiting period, just the, the torture of having to explain to patients why they have to come two times. And that's, that's ongoing. Still patients who've never been our patient before don't understand why they have to come two times. They just want to do everything in one visit because right. they live so far away and it's such a burden for them. That's hard. And uh, working with attorneys and battling these cases and the fear of not winning the cases and going forward and the concerns of how it will impact our care and our ability to to be able to provide care to our patients and our ability to stay open. If it's the case at any point that clinic services, in-clinic services are no longer available, to what extent could abortion pills that uh, patients could uh, take themselves uh, potentially be a substitute? I definitely think that... um is a potential substitute and is already happening. There's definitely already patients who are accessing this medication online, having it mailed to them, or accessing it some other way. That, you know, might be working some now. We don't know how it would work on a larger scale, how accessible it'll be. What's next? Is that going to be the next thing that the Republican legislatures criminalize? What will be the penalty for that? Will they start, you know, cracking down on the laws that surround shipment of prescription medications? You know, the, we, we don't know what's going to happen and if that is truly going to help access. Well, I just saw something in the news today, and I'm going to bring it up. Yeah, from, uh, uh, we'll go to Vice News. Um, 
One of the most prominent abortion providers in the world announced Friday that she will not, uh, she will not, oh, she will not stop sending pills that trigger abortions to the U.S., even though the FDA has ordered her to close up shop. Uh, so, at least according to this one article that I'll post a link to, it sounds as if the FDA is already attempting to crack down. Uh, so, take that as you take that as you wish. But I confess I don't know uh, anything about the pharmacology associated with uh, these pills. Uh, are there potential complications that arise from their use that a woman might be, uh, if were they to, were they to occur, even more vulnerable if she's taking them at home rather than at a clinic? You know, medication abortion is extremely safe. Okay. And even patients who currently access it at a clinic are usually taking the medicine at home now anyway. Oh, really? I didn't know that. They're usually taking the first medication at the clinic and the second medication they take home with them that they take between 24 and 48 hours later. So the second medication is taken at home and the majority of the process of the abortion is experienced at their home or wherever they choose to be. So medication abortion is quite safe. There's good information out there now with the internet and each individual's ability to access information with the right effort and work, good information is available. I think I'm more concerned about patients who will be fearful to seek care in the rarest instance when there is something out of the ordinary happen. Because there are things that are out of the ordinary that can happen yeah. with any abortion procedures and the medication abortion. Patients that have more bleeding than is expected. Yeah. And we tell patients how to seek care, where to seek care, what to expect. But if they've obtained these medications possibly illegally and they're concerned about what's going to happen and if they do seek care, is that going to cause more problems because patients are fearful of what will happen? So I wonder if there are ways that you think that your work feels different for you as a woman than you imagine it would if you were a man. I think just in the ability to empathize versus sympathize, as much as a man can understand a woman's situation and be responsive to what she's going through, even if I think a woman has not been in that situation, they have the ability to to know that they could be in that situation. Even if they've never needed an abortion in their life before, seeing that through our patient's eyes and all the different complex things that go into obtaining abortion care, it, it puts a bit different perspective on it as a woman to know that this could be me, this could be my daughter, this could be my friend. I think as a woman just puts it in a different perspective. Are there ways in which the work feels different for you as a mother versus if you didn't have kids? Most definitely. When I started this work, I did not have children and have carried two pregnancies throughout my work as an abortion provider. It's made me that much more committed to the work that I do. Seeing how hard pregnancy is and how hard motherhood is and all the things that go along with that 
has definitely made more, me that much more committed to patients' ability to be able to obtain the care that they need because of the realization that motherhood's not always 100% sunshine and roses. It's, <laughs> it's hard, and yeah. there's a lot of work that goes into it. When you've walked into a room with a patient at a time when you yourself were visibly pregnant, have you has that evoked a reaction? I, I could imagine, maybe I'm in left field here, but I could imagine some patients worrying that you might be even more judgmental as someone who is clearly opting to carry a pregnancy to term. I was very concerned about that with my first pregnancy. I was almost more hesitant to have as much interaction with patients because I was I didn't want to make them feel bad for the decision that they were making by right. my obvious opposite choice from theirs. But I quickly realized through interaction with patients, patients would often say, oh, how far are you? When are you due? Do you know what mm. you're having? And I was so surprised how natural and normal it was to interact in that way. Even though she was there to talk about obtaining her abortion, it was still just reality that, I wasn't obtaining an abortion, and that was okay. I mean, it's just part of normal, everyday life. And I even had a patient say to me, it's so nice to see you still working here. And those sorts of interactions really encouraged me to, to not feel guilty or ashamed or concerned about how, the pay, how I'm making the patients feel despite my obvious pregnancy. Without divulging any de details that would compromise the security of your workplace, can you shed some light on the kinds of threats to security or things that have made you a little antsy at times over the years? Well, we do take security very seriously. We have an armed security officer whenever patients are present. We have security cameras. We have a well-designed building to that our parking lot is our private property as well. Mm -hmm. So that limits the interaction we have with our protesters. We do have protesters almost every single day that we are open. We Sometimes we have two protesters. Sometimes we have 40. Have you ever spoken to them? We. Not, I have never initiated conversation with them personally. Mm -hmm. I have been spoken to by them mm -hmm. on numerous occasions. Gotcha. But I choose not to interact with them because I don't think that they have anything that could add to my life or my experience. I hear the things that they say to our patients. Most of them are hateful yeah. and not not in line with the religion they claim to represent, Yeah, but it's very difficult to, to hear what they have to say. I really try not to be out there and interact with, with the protesters as much as absolutely possible. Are there volunteers at your clinic? Most definitely. We have an amazing group of volunteers. As our protester activity increased in 2012, we have had an out-of-town group that began to target us, and they were a very different kind of protester. 
they were very aggressive and loud and angry and had loudspeakers and megaphones and giant horrible pictures and it was so upsetting for our patients that we started reaching out to just friends we knew in the community friends that had been active at the legislature and friends that we knew just through mutual friends and people that we thought might have a kind ear we came across this amazing group of women that just took it as their mission and ran with it since 2012 they have formed a real organization that has its own title and mission. They are the Arkansas Abortion Support Network. They are escorts. They are there nearly every day we see patients. They have one to sometimes five or six volunteers at a time that approach patients at their car with a large rainbow umbrella Mm -hmm. and usually just say, you don't have to listen to these people. Come on, I'll walk you to the door. They're they have expanded their work. They started as just our escorts, but they are so much more than that now. They have expanded to operate a fund that's specific to Arkansas that helps pay for abortion care for patients in Arkansas. They established a not-for-profit organization so that they could fundraise towards that goal, and they just do amazing work. It takes the right kind of person to, to volunteer at the clinic and have to interact with protesters it's Mm. not for everybody because we do have a strict non-engagement policy we don't want arguments and escalation because that's just more upsetting for patients right but but there are volunteer opportunities that they have not just at the clinic but throughout their organization and i think the volunteers will tell you it's life-changing for them they thought that they understood what it meant to be pro-choice, but being at the clinic and interacting with patients just gives you a very, very different perspective of things. If you had a chance to talk to someone who is not yet convinced that women should have legalized access to abortion. They're perhaps on the fence, to borrow a phrase from you earlier, or they are opposed to it, but they're willing to listen to you. And maybe you've had a conversation like this already, but whether you can draw on an actual conversation you recall, or if you can imagine it now, what might you say to such a person? Some of it depends on where that person is coming from and why they disagree with it. Usually it's religious-based. There's a lot of religions that are not against abortion. I sometimes bring up that as a counterpoint and offer them that other perspective. There are, you know, the the cases that we talked about that are emotional that evoke a person's response where you say, but what about this patient? What about the 10 year old we saw? And what about the woman who had a one? You saw, you saw, you saw a 10 year old. Yes. We've seen a 10 year old. Wow. And that evokes emotion, even in the most anti-choice person. And so we do sometimes use these cases that evoke emotion, 
the woman who has major health problems and has even a brain tumor and can't seek treatment unless she terminates her pregnancy and has other children at home that she needs to care for. And when you bring up these cases, it does evoke emotion in people who are profoundly anti-choice. But I think it's then important to say, but we can't put every patient before a panel of people that gets to decide if their reason is good enough. It needs to be a choice between that patient, her doctor, and her God if she has one. And we, we can't leave this up to a panel of people that decides. So it is about having access for everyone, not just the ones that, that seem the most extreme. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Lori for taking the time to talk with me. I also want to thank Lori and her team for the compassion and service they offer to the women who need them. For more information on this episode, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode, where I will include links to information that's relevant, including a link by which you can make a donation to the Arkansas Abortion Support Network. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can mention Tatter on Twitter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or at iTunes you can post a review. In any case, and as always, thanks for listening, and be well.